Welcome to Catholic Radio for Katie Anna's presentation of Cajun Catholics. Here's your host, Todd Citron. Welcome to Cajun Catholics. I'm your host, Todd Citron. Today you'll be listening to part two of Outstanding Catholic Father Jeremy Lambert with the Legionaries of Christ, and the guest host today will be Mr. Steve Lanza. My name is Steve Lanza, and I'm sitting in today for your normal host, Todd Citron. Our guest today is Father Jeremy Lambert, who was ordained a priest in Rome in 2012 for the Legionaries of Christ. Father Jeremy currently serves as the local vocation director for the Legionaries of Christ order, and also serves as the chaplain for the Regnum Christi movement in Louisiana. Father Jeremy, on behalf of everyone here at 90.5 FM, Catholic Radio for Acadiana, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. For our listening audience, Father Jeremy and I first met in January of this year during a retreat that the Legion of Christ priests conducted in Covington. Father Jeremy and I realized during the retreat that we shared some family friends from a small town in rural Georgia, and by the time that the retreat ended, we became fast friends. He made such an impression on me that I knew we simply had to find a way to have this amazing young priest share his vocation story and his unique evangelization message with our listening audience. Before we begin, uh, Father Jeremy, would you like to start us out by leading us in a prayer? Yes, Steve. Thank you very much for having me also. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us and this opportunity to share the mission of joy, of hope, and of love to all those listeners here today. Um, Be with us and let all of us know your loving providence. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So what is it that's the most difficult thing about being a priest? Um, I think... I can relate it to the, maybe the marriage life. So, you know, if you meet a couple in um, marriage counseling or, or one-on-one, they always say, well, Father, um, my wife is doing this, and it's, that's why our marriage is so rotten right now, or, um, you know, infidelities or whatever it might be. I don't have that luxury. If something's wrong in my relationship, it's my fault <laughs> because <laughs> Christ is not going to, you know, he's perfect, and the um, that's a challenge for me. So I think the biggest thing that I could reflect on would be maybe those moments that I've lacked generosity or I failed Christ and souls because of my selfishness. So to see that mission given to me or that opportunity to reach out and, and be Christ's hands, his feet, his eyes, his, his words for a soul and then fall short because of my selfishness, um, that hurts. I'm, you know. I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but listen, uh, we all realize that uh, you know, we all have our struggles, no matter the vocation. And we appreciate you telling us about that one. You told me on yesterday that you're also the chaplain to the Regnum Christi movement in Louisiana, and you serve as spiritual advisor to a number of Catholics here in Acadiana. So what's the role of a spiritual advisor, and do you think it's important for Catholics to have one? Well, Steve, I do highly recommend i have a, my own spiritual director and i think all priests um you know in their own personal life are recognized since the time of seminary the need for that um as you mentioned i, I administer primarily to the reagan christian movement which is a movement in the catholic church there are over 140 movements approved by the church and reagan christie which is latin for kingdom of christ is just one of those and these 
laymen, laymen and women within their parish life, within their um, community, feel a call to live out their vocation to holiness through the spiritual means, the um, community life, and the apostolic means of the Regnum Christi movement. And I'm, along with a couple of other priests of the legionaries, are chaplains to them to help them grow in their spiritual life. And so, Steve, yeah, the importance of spiritual direction, it's actually an old tradition from the monks in the 800s when they would offer confession and lay people would come and it would be a long line outside the confessional of maybe you've seen here <laughs> even today and um you know you'd you'd make this pilgrimage to the monastery to have your confession heard and you'd want to ask more so you know a 10-minute confession would stretch out to an hour long and the monks would be like there's a long line out there let's wow. cut it here <laughs> keep confession confession and we could talk about this later so that's kind of the origin of spiritual direction I see. so it does have that um, seal of confession connected to it but um, nowadays we have the, the grace of not only priests being spiritual directors but we have lay spiritual guides um, the diocese has um, spiritual guides assigned um, for the diocese for those that are seeking spiritual direction so that's a beautiful opportunity um, but really there it's um, asking ourselves what God is calling me to do in my life and how do I fit into God's plan of salvation in the world where God has that big puzzle piece in mind when he created the heavens and the earth and all creation and he thought of you as one piece of the puzzle where you are in that whole puzzle your shape how you touch the other puzzle pieces around you your color how you fit into that beautiful picture of God's plan and it's up to us to discover to ask the source of that life that he's given us what am I supposed to do with this I don't belong to myself I belong to you how do I fit into this plan of salvation and this helps us the spiritual direction helps us to discover our role in the plan of salvation God's will for us my purpose Sometimes we ask ourselves, what am I supposed to be doing? Is this it? Going to work, getting you know, my paycheck, um, keeping my house in order, getting my kids from one place to another. Is this what my life's supposed to look like or is there something more? And it's about making decisions, um, but making decisions out of freedom, not out of disordered ideas or out of my pleasure or power, prestige, right? But for many, the purpose of the spiritual direction is to develop and deepen our relationship with God, to come closer to God, to become more intimate with God, and to let God work more deeply within my heart so that I can draw closer to God. It's also to grow in virtue um, so as to grow in our relationship with God and others. Very good. So what role does Eucharistic adoration play in your daily life, and, and what can you tell our listeners about the importance of adoration to Catholics? And, and what we have is a blazingly fast-paced digital world where our cell phones are always ringing and text messages always chiming in, and there's a million and one ways how we can busy ourselves 24-7 on social media. So how do you view Eucharistic adoration in your life? And do you have any message or advice to our listeners about being an adorer in their own lives? Sure, sure, Steve. Yeah, well, I think above all, it's 
taking or thinking of this the psalm be still and know that he is lord being still that's something that we're not good at in today's society um and we need it our soul needs to thrive in that stillness that quiet where we're face to face with our creator in my personal life i'm very blessed in my um, religious community there in mandeville um, in our our little chapel there in our residential home we have adoration every night as part of our um, prayer commitment so we have um, half an hour of adoration every night where we pray our um, our examine prayer and we also have our compline that we pray together as part as the priestly commitments of praying the psalms but i think for all of us above all prayer is um it's about recollection um the recollection in the presence of god right which is where we give our attention to him right it's not about concentration you know like focusing laser focused on some idea um but it's giving the soul time to turn from the visible reality, like our, you know, the humdrum of every day, the rigmarole of just going around and doing stuff, from that visible reality to the invisible presence of God. And the soul needs time to make that shift. Is it more important to pray while in Eucharistic adoration, or is it more important to listen, in your opinion? Well, there's all needs of people in different seasons of their life. Um, it's a, actually a huge help for me every year. I try to go over the numbers in the catechism on prayer. There's a chapter there that's very beautiful um, about the different styles of prayer. So if that would be something helpful for you, I highly suggest it. But there in adoration, it's very special because it's the love of Christ and the heart of Christ exposed. If you're familiar with the Eucharistic miracles, I had the chance to meet the scientist that's in charge of the Eucharistic miracles and studying them on behalf of the Vatican. He's been doing it for 25 years, Dr. Castellon. And he started off 20 years ago, 25 years ago as an atheist. And he was hired by the Vatican because he was an atheist to be um, kind of the one that goes around and makes sure of the authenticity of these claimed miracles. And he shared in a conference that I was able to attend about um, one in particular where he went Mm -hmm to the miracle site, studied the sample of a host that the priest had consecrated. It had fallen on the ground. They had placed it in the tabernacle to be, um, later on that day, to be placed in water to dissolve, to properly dispose of it. And after taking the host out of the tabernacle for some time, it was sitting in there, the priest recognized that there was blood on the host. It was no longer just white bread um, of the body of Christ, but it was bleeding. So um, Dr. Castillon came and took a sample of that blood in the host, brought it to his laboratory, studied it, and found that, well, several things, and it was a two-hour conference, though. I don't remember all the details. (laughs) But what I do remember is that this blood had white blood cells in it, which is impossible when exposed to the air. It had um, a blood type of of AB positive, and it also had, um, it was freshly oxygenated, um, after being exposed there. So it was just these things that he could not explain. Amazing. So he sent it to one of his friends in New York who was also a, a scientist. He, Dr. Castillon didn't tell the man, or the scientist, where the sample had come from. So he looked at the blood and um, he noticed that there were particles of, of tissue in the blood sample. 
he studied the tissue and noticed that they were from a, a human heart and um, also concurred with Dr. Castillon of the other um, qualities that um, he had noticed. But the heart tissue was, um, he said that was under a lot of duress and had been, you could see signs of torture because of the stress wow. level on the tissue. And he said, I don't know who your patient is, but get him to the ICU because he's just been beaten to the last moment of his life. Oh my goodness. And that helps us to see that behind the Eucharistic um, pre uh, um, accidents of bread, there's a human heart that is alive because it's freshly oxygenated. There's, you know, white blood cells, et cetera, et cetera. And the blood type, which was astounding to me, you know, I thought that AB positive might be, you know, universal donor, that he's just there for everybody, but it's actually universal recipient. Oh. So theologically speaking, you could say, well, Christ is there to receive everybody. Oh, and that's I beautiful. think that helps us to go before the Eucharist with awe and reverence that Christ is in all of his mercy and vulnerability. Humanity is on display as a human heart that understands our struggles and is there to receive us and is waiting for us. So sometimes you don't even need to speak when you're with somebody on their deathbed. It's not like you want to talk to them all the time. Sure. You just want to be there with them because you love them. And I think there it's, um, you know, what's at the heart of Christ when he's there exposed. Well, that's a, that's a great uh, piece of advice. So I remember Bob and Penny Lord wrote a book, uh, actually a series of books called Eucharistic Miracles, Part 1 and 2. And they went through each of the Eucharistic miracles throughout the world. Uh, I've always wondered why in teaching the youth, about the real presence, the actual presence of Christ in the Eucharist, why those Eucharistic miracles could not be a, a lesson, a tangible lesson of how we do have uh, Christ truly present in the Eucharist. Here are examples throughout history. Have you ever had an opportunity to conduct a retreat on the real presence, the actual presence of Christ in the Eucharist? Is that something that in evangelization efforts going on now, we're using to help uh, illuminate that fact and what's so unique about the Catholic religion. So I think, yes, I think every retreat that I've been part of and um, assisted with has that element of the sacraments, of the Eucharistic presence, of being able to go to Mass, of being able to go to the Eucharist and just spend time, that quiet time in front of our Lord, which is um, transformative. And you look at the Gospels, wherever somebody came before Christ, they didn't go away the same. They went away changed, transformed. And it's almost as if you're going to the beach, right? Right. Um, some of us are more sensitive to getting sunburned than others. But either way, if you're in the sun for a long time, you're not going to go home diff the same, right? You're going to sure. a little tan or a little red. Oh, absolutely. The same as um, that's the physical world. But the same is in the spiritual world. If you go before the Eucharist, you're going to get um, sun, S-O-N, burned. Right? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So do you have any advice to those in our listening audience who might be discerning a vocation, whether that be a priest or some other uh, aspect of the religious life? What always impressed me or helped me on my journey was um, remembering especially the words of John Paul II when he said, Be not afraid. I think today it's, um, you know, could be a, a daunting um, call, something that you're afraid of is, you know, 
especially with you know the struggles that the church is going through nowadays with maybe the priest scandals or those like that it's it's like do I really want to get into that but to see it as Christ sees it to see the the joy and the courage that it takes to to be a priest it's it's something that's life-giving and I don't doubt any second of my priesthood it's been such a, a adventure a journey and a privilege to be able to um, to model Christ and to um, to be another Christ in the world where he's so lacking you know the world is dying <laughs> and starving and thirsting for lack of Christ and um, as a priest you're able to bring Christ into those places of darkness of, of hunger of need um, in the imperfect way that we are, right? So there's, sure. it's not that we're perfect men by any means, but I think for anybody that's feeling that call, first of all, is you know, as I tell anybody, just pray, become a man of prayer, become a man that really knows um, Christ in the Gospels and the Eucharist, and, and live a life of virtue. Start walking that path of holiness that all are called to, but especially if you're feeling called to the priesthood, um, have some good spiritual reading take on some spiritual books, fill yourself with those noble thoughts and um, wholesome spiritual reading. Look for a spiritual director, somebody that could help you objectively um, navigate these questions that you might have or the experiences that you might have. And look around. Go and see what attracts you. Go check out different groups um, of priests, of orders, of diocesan life. Um, Get familiar with it all and and God will call. He'll He'll make it attractive, and it'll definitely be something that um, maybe that I've, as I have experienced, an adventure that you'll never regret. Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, Father Jeremy, one of the things that I will never forget about you, no matter how long I live, is the story you told me about your father. And your father honorably served his country during some of the most intense periods of fighting in the Vietnam War. And I've told the story about your father to a number of my friends and family and and without a doubt it's truly one of the most moving things I've ever heard and and I'd ask would you mind sharing that amazing story with our listeners today sure Steve I'd be happy to even though every time I do my dad's always um, saying you missed a part or you didn't tell <laughs> her so it's not my story but um, uh, so my father yes he was um, as I'd mentioned there's six of us in the family six children and he um, what he grew up in an all-boys Catholic school in Atlanta um, and graduating from there he actually tried out the um, the Marist Fathers a religious order and joined the seminary for two years um, and thanks be to God it wasn't his vocation because I wouldn't be here right now but <laughs> God has his ways but all that to say that he was spiritually sensitive and um, later on he joined the Marines he was an infantry officer and um, after graduating officer school, he went to Vietnam, and there he had 60 men underneath him. He was 25 at the time, and he had you know 17, 18-year-old boys that he was in charge of. Mm-hmm. And basically, he realized, I've got to try to get these boys home sure. to their moms. Um, they fought in the jungle for eight months, and um, up until the Chinese New Year, the um, both sides had... Um, settled on a, a ceasefire for the Chinese new, to respect the Chinese New Year celebrations, but midnight of that night, when everybody was you know asleep, the North Viet Cong uh, organized, synchronized an attack on 20 different cities at midnight, and broke the truce. And um, horrible things happened. 
um, during that surprise attack. But um, the long and short of it, my father and his um, platoon were drawn out, or battalion, were drawn out of the jungle to fight in Wei City, which um, was a, a dynasty capital, had a lot of cultural importance for the Vietnamese people, so it was a beautiful city. And they were highly outnumbered. So there's um, U.S. troops against the Viet Cong. It was, for every American soldier, there were six of the Viet Cong soldiers. So they're six to one. And they went into the city um, in house-to-house combat. So they went street to street, block by block, trying to push their way through the city with heavy fighting. And it was a 29-day battle. And this was day and night. It wasn't like you know nine to five job. Sure. You sleep one hour shifts with your buddy. So you'd, you'd sleep and then your buddy would take your place. Hmm. And they just kept trying to move forward. One of his objectives was a, a church. Um, it was a church in Way City called Our Lady of um, Divine Help. Catholic Church. Catholic Church. And he, as being a Catholic, um, sensitive to that, it felt awkward. But they had intelligence that that was a stronghold of the enemy. So he actually, I think at that point of the battle... They had got lost several of his men, um, wounded. I don't think any of them were, were mortally wounded, but they were down, I think, from 60 men down to 20. Oh. And um, they went to take this church. And he sent half of his men around the perimeter to set up a perimeter, and then he went in with the rest of the 10 men. And there he sent them to the pews, to the steeple, to the sacristy. And he was by himself at the entrance of the church. And there to his left, he noticed a door that they had overlooked that went down to the basement, to the crypt of the church. So he said, I've got to check it out. He went by himself and there were no lights. So he crept down quietly without making noise to the landing underneath the church. And it um, turned into the door underneath the, the basement. So he put his back up against the door and there in the darkness, he reached into his flat jacket and started pulling the pin of the grenade um, to be able to throw into the room as they had been accustomed to and enter in with machine gun fire to make sure that no one was there. And as he was there in the darkness with his back up against the door, pulling that pin of the grenade, he felt a hand touch his hand and it made him freeze. And he knew it wasn't a aggressive touch, but it's more of a gentle touch. And for some reason with all the, the sleep deprivation and adrenaline, he just knew there was no danger. This was not a, something that he needed to throw a grenade into. So he put the grenade back in his flat jacket, had his gun on safety and just blindly walked into the room, into the door. And as his eyes adjusted to the darkness, he recognized little vigil lights scattered around and there on the floor, were the women and children of the parish taking refuge and praying their rosary. Oh my. And he was very close to having thrown the grenade in there and just, you know, having destroyed that, um, that refuge place for those people. And he, after kind of catching his breath and realizing what was happening, he brought those people out, um, got him through, you know, the, the dangerous parts of the, ba- the fighting, the battle, and got them to the refugee camp kept fighting, um, got wounded, the whole battle finished, and the long and short of it, he was sent home. And kind of in, you know, the trauma that he experienced of all the the, ugliness of war, he forgot about that scenario. But he still had that kind of um, 
bad dreams and the just the going through all the stuff that he had done um, for years afterwards. Um, my mom said when they were first married, first five years, he slept with a pistol next next to his bed. Wow! So you imagine the strength my mom just to bear with all that and mm-hmm. love him through it. Uh, Thirty years later, he was still struggling with his nightmares and whatnot of of the atrocities of war. So he sought out a priest who had um, a gift of reading souls in confession. So you go to confession with this priest, and he would just tell you things that you didn't realize about yourself or remember. Sort of like uh, Padre Pio. Right, exactly that same gift. Um, So my father went to him and, you know, said a normal confession and just said, you know, I've been fighting with some nightmares. It was a face-to-face confession. There was a statue of Mary there in the confessional, and the priest didn't know him, but he said, you know, Mike, um, let me ask you some questions. Something's on my heart I want to share with you. My dad's like, sure. So he said, uh, you were in Vietnam, right? My dad's like, yeah. And he said, um, do you remember something about a, a basement of a church? Um, and my dad just started like kind of shaking and he's like, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. He's like, do you remember not throwing a grenade into um, the, this group of people? And my dad just started crying. And he's like, yes, I do remember that. And this priest said, well, Mike, I don't know why this came to me, but um, you know, Mary just wants me to share something with you that that was her hand that stopped you from throwing that grenade. Wow. And she just wants, you know, you to trust in her protection and know that it's okay. You could let all that go. And I think that for my father was a huge turning point in his conversion. And there he kind of opened up, whereas before he was kind of a closed, you know, man didn't share anything about his, his experience or the healing hadn't happened yet. What an amazing spiritual reality that he was exposed to even in the backdrop of war Mary was there mm-hmm. watching mm-hmm. so what do you think the message is from your father's story for our radio audience about how does Mary's presence relate to our everyday lives and what can we do to foster um, a Marian devotion in our everyday lives well Steve I think the first thing is just to be humble right to follow that that model and example of Mary that we can make mistakes and error, but we have to trust in Mary's guidance and follow her to Christ's will. That if we always run to her for her protection, she'll always bring us to, to Christ. And that's ultimately what we're all about, is discovering God's love for us and, and his protection. Well, Father Jeremy, you, um, you have been so kind to spend this time with us today. I think we have learned a lot about your order and, uh, and your ministry, and I can't thank you enough. Uh, would you like to conclude with a prayer? Sure, Steve. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, you know our paths. You know where we've come from and where we're going. And we'd just like to take this time in your presence to welcome you into our hearts, to ask you to transform us into those apostles, those disciples, that will transform society, that will bring about the kingdom of Christ as that leaven in the dough. And I just pray for all those listeners today that they may discover their path, their vocation to holiness, and to really seek first the kingdom of God, that God will provide for all their needs, and that they may be true, authentic witnesses of his love. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen.
the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Jeremy, thank you again. And to everyone listening to Cajun Catholics, uh, tune in again next week. And we thank you for listening to KLFT 90.5 FM.